Strange times are upon us, and in spite of a daily procession of experts telling us how to understand what's going on at the moment, I personally feel confused and a little surprised at what this pandemic is revealing to us about ourselves and our society. And it seems like I'm not alone. I think the rush to hoard toilet paper. I can't wait in time to read what psychoanalysts make of it. In the United States, people buying guns and ammunition, I mean, I think that's tragic, but there's a logic there that's undeniable. Uh, buying toilet paper, on the other hand, I don't have the expertise to, to say what that means, what this says about us, but I'm really looking forward to people who do kind of helping us think through that. You're in the Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and my guest this week, Brian Mukandi, who's a doctor working at the intersection of medicine and philosophy. He's currently lecturing in medical ethics at the University of Queensland. Brian published a really interesting blog post recently titled Thinking Through COVID-19, which considers how even though we're constantly being told that we're in uncharted waters and everything has changed, there's a sense in which really not enough has changed and we're navigating these uncharted waters with some very familiar and rather moth-eaten old maps. One of those maps is the one that shows crisis as something that comes out of nowhere, an atemporal phenomenon with no historical or political context, and one that gives us no time to think about questions of ethics and justice. There's a simplicity in thinking about this pandemic as something happening in the instant and something that needs to be addressed in the instant. Like this emergency thinking helps put forward simple uh, public health messages um, and it helps keep everything simple. And so it's easier to get the community to respond in ways that are likely to have more positive than negative public health outcomes in the moment. The thing though is that nothing just ever emerges in the present. All phenomena are temporal phenomena. So even though there's a utility in thinking of this patient before me right now with this disease, or thinking about today there are X number of people with uh, suffering the effects of this virus and we need to address them. What's actually happening is that we come to this moment as a result of a set of historical and political and economic processes and decisions. And, you know, like the dominant idea is the virus doesn't discriminate. Uh, it's just a virus. It's not a thinking thing. And that a medical response ought not be political, right? It ought not to discriminate. But that only works given a particular an investment in a particular way of looking at the situation because there is plenty of evidence already that the virus does discriminate, or at least the effects of the virus, the outcomes of, of, of the situation. There's a disparate set of outcomes depending on people's situations. So spread, you know, the introduction into communities is more likely to be brought in by more affluent people and affluence is distributed in particular demographic ways. But once it's been introduced in a community, the people who are most susceptible, the people who are most likely to end up being seriously ill and dying for it, like on aggregate, are poorer people. And again, poverty is distributed in particular ways. And again, in terms of temporality, 
people don't just become poor in an instant, right? My medical school, like most medical schools, the distribution of socioeconomic backgrounds of our students is skewed and is skewed towards people who are more well off. Because there's a certain kind of resources that it takes to be able to convert your labor into the kind of opportunity that's a place in medical school. So you've got to ask, like, you know, the sets of privileges by which someone can come to be in medical school, those are accumulated over time. And so there's a question to be asked about the justice of the process of that accumulation. Similarly, the source of social disadvantages that mean that someone is liable to end up with less financial means at their stake. Someone is more liable to be out of work in this time and someone's liable to have several comorbidities. You know, the processes that get this person to be an individual uh, who's materially poor and who physically carries a set of comorbidities, that process is one that happens over time. And it's one which is likely to be an unjust one. You know, so the idea that this is an equal opportunity disease, you can only make that claim if you hold a particular ideological view. It's interesting. I mean, this is a little, I, I want to come back to what you're saying, but just as a side note here, there seems to be an implication in what you're saying that the cohort of people from which medical students and doctors are drawn is in some ways the cohort least likely to really understand the dynamics of the sort of thing you're talking about. I think so, but not just doctors, but doctors, senior academics, um, policymakers, the raft of people in charge ultimately of addressing the situation for all of their intelligence and all of their brilliance and all of their desire to serve the community as best as they can are limited, right? The trouble is, it is unfashionable to say that maybe the people in charge don't have the resources to adequately address the situation in a way that's just. So I'll give you an example. If you're a doctor and you are in Italy and you're faced with the decision of, do I allocate this ventilator to this um, eight-year-old with uh, four comorbid uh, conditions or this healthy 25-year-old? It is likely that a utilitarian logic will rule that leads you to thinking, look, lots of comorbid conditions, uh, you know, I'm older, uh, my medical training tells me that the chances of recovery are better in this 25-year-old, ergo, tragic as it is, I'm going to give this ventilator to a 25-year-old. Completely rational, uh, you know, can be justified and so forth. But the ways in which uh, medical students, the ways in which doctors are trained is such that the thing that is most pertinent is this presentist kind of field of view, right? The thing that's most present is in this moment, who is most going to benefit? The fact that this 85-year-old may have over a lifetime uh, suffered a series of injustices and is now in this final moment having, as a result of those injustices that they have suffered, is now being forced to suffer the further injustice of not getting this life-saving resource. The fact that the 25-year-old to whom this is being given may be incredibly privileged, uh, might not have contributed very much to the society, 
these aren't considerations uh, that uh, clinicians are trained to make. And one could argue that they're not even considerations that clinicians should be making. The problem, though, is there's no kind of intervening process to account for that, you know. And there's a deferral to the expertise and the knowledge of the clinician, which is a very narrow kind of expertise and knowledge. Even worse, the kind of expertise and knowledge of the policymaker and of the senior academic who's advising that policymaker, for the most part, not always, but for the most part, is likely to be as narrow. And part of the problem is we have a prospectus or a um, marketing photograph conception of diversity. You know, most people, I'm not sure, understand the importance of the epistemic significance of diversity at all levels of government and at all levels of kind of, of governance. And how does that, when you talk about that diversity, how does that play into the response to something like COVID-19? So let's think about the people we've seen on TV being asked to weigh in on COVID-19 or on all forms of media, really, right? You know, like if we think about who we take to be an authority on the situation, it'll typically be someone of high rank in government or someone in high rank in academia or someone of high rank uh, in the field of epidemiology of medicine. But if the process of achieving high rank in those industries means that certain people are structurally very unlikely to achieve those high ranks. There is a filtering out of a wide variety of views and there's a filtering out of the views of the people most likely to be affected. So if there is a kind of disregard to certain communities under the best of circumstances, the idea that at the worst of circumstances, uh, there'll be a road of D- to Damascus experience, uh, scales will fall from the government's eyes and there will suddenly be this just and equitable approach, I find, I think it's fanciful. But it gets worse than that. Under the best of circumstances, there's differences in outcomes and clinical outcomes for some patient groups. So under the best of circumstances, for example, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander patients who meet the requirements to be put on a kidney transfer list are less likely, it takes longer for them to be put on those lists, even though they meet those clinical criteria. Several coronial inquests have shown us that there have been thousands of occasions on which Indigenous patients have been horribly failed by the hospitals where clinicians have failed to take a temperature recording where people with really simple conditions that you'd expect a third-year medical student to diagnose end up being undiagnosed and end up dying in hospitals. That's under the best of circumstances. If that's the case, then that ought to give us pause. We like to think that when there's an injustice, the injustice is the result of some aberration. You know, it's like maybe there was that one clinician that was a little bit racist, or maybe, maybe that just happened to have been a really unusually busy day. I think what COVID forces us to think is that, you know, what if those aren't aberrations? I think it highlights some uncomfortable realities about the state of our society. 
This is RN. I'm David Rutledge. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone. And this week, Brian Mukandi is my guest. He's a lecturer in medical ethics at the University of Queensland. We're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic and how it looks when you put it in a temporal context with a view to ethical questions, questions of social justice, as well as clinical ones. Interesting, you use the phrase forces us to think that COVID-19 forces us to think about certain things because it's also true, isn't it, that there really isn't a lot of time to think in a crisis like this. And here's where I'd like to bring in Hannah Arendt, who you write about very interestingly in your in your blog piece, because there's something in her work on thinking that in your view speaks to this situation. Can we talk about that a little bit? I mean, first of all, in Hannah Arendt's view, what is thinking? What does that process involve? Yeah, I mean, so I think Arendt makes a distinction between kind of like algorithmic forms of thought, algorithmic processes, these processes that keep us from having to do the work of thinking. If someone comes into hospital uh, with a surgical emergency, you don't want them to take forever uh, to be paralyzed and to spend time like grappling with, okay, so... Because it's an emergency, you know, and there are these algorithms, there are these things where if someone comes in with this condition and that condition and that condition, you do this. And Arendt isn't dismissive of that. She, she, you know, she says there's a place for that. There's a place for cliches. There's a place for prestheses of thought. There's a place for algorithms. The trouble, though, is those algorithms often don't apply in specific circumstances. And sometimes there is a need to stop and to recognise that there's kind of like this difficult conceptual work that needs to be done to understand what's happening. This makes me think about how Arendt was very reluctant to call herself a philosopher. And I think that what you're saying certainly has a bearing on the business of philosophy, which is often a process of of not thinking, if you like, or, or at least you know constructing very solid edifices of thought and then defending them from all incursions, which is sort of the opposite of thinking in Arendt's view, right? Absolutely. And it's funny, right? It's like one of the legitimating moments of contemporary Western philosophy is the Enlightenment. You know, this idea that God is dead, we ourselves must now become our own gods. You know, like we can't just defer to tradition. We can't just defer to religion. You know, Uh, we need to do the work of reasoning, of grappling with things ourselves. And yet what more often than not happens is that a lot of effort goes into a kind of literary analysis of how does Heidegger make sense of the world? How does Arendt make sense of the world? How does Husserl make sense of the world? And once I've understood that, then I take a particular phenomenon and I try and fit it into that framework. And what that does is it gives us a kind of rigor and a set of standards But I think what we end up doing is we end up confusing rigor for thought. And also thought is incredibly difficult. So in our present moment, right, there is a felt need to give answers. If you're an expert, if you are the head of philosophy at University X and you're asked your opinion on COVID-19, I don't know, doesn't seem like it's an option. Or I'm still thinking through that doesn't seem like an option. We're still, what we're not trained to do is we're not trained to say, listen, 
this is a really, really difficult thing that I'm still thinking through. Indigenous communities have been dealing with the catastrophic uh, since 1788. Why don't we go have a conversation? You know, like I, I, I'm going to direct you to an Indigenous community uh, organization to think this through instead. Thought, I think, sometimes demands a deferring of authority. It's interesting, though, to consider what those in position of authority have been saying and, and the thinking behind some of these utterances. I mean, you identified Scott Morrison's recent exhortation as a case in point here, where last month he said that as long as Australians keep being Australians, we'll get through this together. And you can understand what he was on about there, but it's a reflexive sort of utterance, a thoughtless one, not in a moral sense, but it judged according to the model of thinking proposed by Hannah Arendt. Is that is that what you're getting at there? Absolutely. And the thing is, look, I mean, like, you know, all those Scotty from marketing hashtags, Scott Morrison's an easy figure to jump onto. And in some ways, and I, you know, and I said in that piece that I'm almost sympathetic. And the reason I'm, you know, part of the reason I'm almost sympathetic is for the most part, Australian epidemi- epidemiologists, well, there's exceptions, but for the most part, it, their response has been exactly the same, right? It's like if epidemiologists keep being epidemiologists in the way that epidemiologists have been until now, we'll be fine. Policymakers, for the most part, the response has been, if policymakers continue to make policy in the way that we've gone about making policy up until then, we'll be fine. Most people's response is exactly the same as Scott Morrison's. And it's because, you know, taking a temporal view of the situation, actually stopping and grappling with what it is about our current social configuration that makes us susceptible in the ways that we're susceptible is incredibly difficult and incredibly uncomfortable. And many of us are heavily invested in the status quo. And we're so invested in the status quo, the potential ramifications of that kind of thinking are terrifying. It is interesting to consider the the things that are changing and and really changing radically. I mean, one thing that a lot of us have noticed is the way in which this government has practically overnight suspended all those neoliberal orthodoxies about the economy and the limit of a government's social responsibilities towards its citizens and started delivering something that if you look at it in a certain light, it looks a little like socialism. And I don't for a moment think that we now have a left-wing government, but I do wonder if there are some very deeply rooted political ideologies being shaken up and perhaps being rethought at the moment. Do do you think that that could be happening or is this more like one of those weird ritual moments where everything gets turned upside down and the king becomes a commoner and the commoner wears the crown, all the social roles get reversed, but then when it's all over, we just go back to how we did everything before? I think that's a much more glass half full view than I'm capable of, David. I don't think we've actually seen any change yet. In the sense of capitalism has never been capitalism for everybody. There's always groups that are seen as worthy of exemptions. The American response to the global financial crisis, especially the decision to bail out kind of like banks, the idea that some institutions were too big to fail. I think that's the model that we're following. And I think what it reflects is the robustness of capitalism uh, and this fascinating sense that these kind of quasi-socialist injections and moments directed at certain groups are permissible within a capitalist framework. But when everything is said and done, I mean, I'm just trying to think what a genuine rethink would be if the government response was, let's institute a universal basic income. If the response was, 
a serious set of programs to structurally ensure in an ongoing fashion that the gains from the resource sector were justly distributed. If there was a huge injection in this present into infrastructure, particularly infrastructure for communities least well-served, I think those things might herald a genuine shift. Honestly, I think what this moment shows us is the groups that our governors take to be essential for the perpetuation of the status quo. But I I don't see the present moment as an actual tangible shift because I don't, and I don't see very much evidence of time taken to actually stop and think. One thing that interests me is the way in which our community spirit is being appealed to at the moment. You know, even if you're young and healthy, stay inside for the good of the community and don't buy all the toilet paper for the good of the community. And it seems to me that this is a very abrupt 180-degree turn away from the sort of society that we have been shaping for ourselves for decades now. Under Liberal and Labor governments, in spite of all the nice things that we tell ourselves about our generosity and our openness, and I wonder if you agree that we have been marching steadily in the direction of a a radical individualism and a very atomised kind of society that's got very little to do with the sort of communitarian ethos that we're now suddenly being asked to embrace. It's, It's a big ask in some ways. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the fascinating thing was the appeal to mateship, right? Like the appeal to the Anzacs, the deployment, for example, of Kathy Freeman when convenient. I mean, we are very good as a society at attempting to perform or to dress ourselves as this multicultural, multi-ethnic community, while at core, again, look at who's doing the speaking, look at who's doing the leading, you know? And so, no, I don't think that kind of communitarian ethos is is grounded in anything substantive. And I mean, like, one of the things that's tragic about the situation is there are plenty of people who have so much to say about the catastrophic in Australia. You know, there is a lot of wealth in the country. But instead of kind of the kind of divestment of power that would be necessary to actually draw on that wealth, what we would prefer to content ourselves with, even in a time of crisis, is the appearance of a community spirit that's not actually there, rather than the work of building it, of building that kind of community. Well, let's finish by thinking about ways in which we could begin to build that sort of community or foster that community spirit through reading, because I think those of us who do read are reading a lot more than we might have been a month ago. If you were going to design a reading list to advance and nurture an effective community spirit, who would be on that list? Okay, so I've been thinking about this and I've come up with three categories, right? So my first category is, I think for those of us here in Australia, Trying to think about how we don't just shelter in place during the storm, but how we how we think through catastrophe, how we begin to reorient ourselves for a kind of more just way of being together post-catastrophe. And I think of all of these as philosophical texts, even though some of them are novels, right? I would recommend my starting point would be Alexis Wright's The Swan Book 
which I think is profound. Irene Watson's uh, Raw Law, which I think is challenging, but, you know, like just really profound and warm. And Aileen Morton Robinson's The White Possessive, a text which I constantly say, and I think should be like the starting place of philosophy in Australia. So those would be my kind of three starting points. In terms of a global view, the philosopher and doctor, he was both doctor and philosopher who kind of grappled with the catastrophic was Franz Fanon. And I would kind of recommend his The Wretched of the Earth. The English translation is bad because like the actual, you know, the title is Le Damné de la Terre. It's like the damned of the earth. And it's kind of like what I think we need to do more and more of is understand the present from the perspective of the damned, right? From the perspective of those carrying the heaviest load of the history that has brought us to the present. I'd also recommend kind of Lorraine Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun, which speaks to, you know, which speaks to a thwarted attempted community. And again, I think just in terms of reflection would be really helpful. And my third in this category would be Lev Shestov's Athens and Jerusalem. Um, Lev Shestov is a, you know, Russian Jewish emigre uh, who ended up in France. He's one of those figures who isn't accorded the respect that I think he should. His work is poorly translated in English. It just hasn't received the attention it deserves. But in Athens and Jerusalem, um, he struggles brilliantly with the idea of the necessary. Like, you know, the things that we take to be necessary, like, are they so? And then my third category of works is works that propel us forward. I think the first would be Omidio Chieng has a book titled The Intellectual Imagination. And it's difficult, uh, it's complex, but it will reward the labor of those who, who put into it. David Austin has a book called Dread Poetry and Freedom. It's an appeal to a kind of a poetic disposition, a, a different kind of way to think, to be. There's something in a poetic sensibility that I think holds promise to a different way of structuring society. Um, and with that, um, Alison Whitaker uh, recently uh, has a book that's just about to come out um, called Firefront, uh, First Nations Poetry and Power Today, with kind of like her poetry and contributions and analysis uh, from a range of other thinkers. I would highly suggest that. And I think coming out sometime next year, um, Chelsea Bond has a book coming out. And I'm, I am really looking forward to that coming because she works through the catastrophic and has this drive to come out on the other side um, and this drive to come out on the other side of the catastrophic with a sustainable, just future. So, I mean, my lists and... Uh, I don't think it's a definitive list at all. Like it's these, these are the places uh, that I turn to, that I'm looking to. These are some of the places I'm turning to and I'm looking to. I think part of what we need though is there's so much wealth in this place. You know, there's so, so, so much wealth in this place. There is such a, a wonderful opportunity to learn and to think uh, with others. And I think in one of the disappointments for me in the moment is there's been a reversion, you know, there's been in the catastrophic, let's fall back onto what we know, as opposed to what we know has got us here. 
in this moment of catastrophic of the catastrophic where do we turn to where do we reach out to institute something different something better Brian Mukandi, lecturer in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Queensland. And we've got full publication details of all those books on the website. You can find us via the ABC Listen app or the RN website. Just look for The Philosopher's Zone on the program menu. There's also a link there to Brian's blog and streaming and download links, just in case you haven't yet discovered that you can subscribe to our podcast, the ideal media product for the socially distanced or the pandemically isolated Thanks for your company this week. I'm David Rutledge. Tweet me at David P Zone, and I hope you're all staying safe and well and sane under these rather challenging circumstances. See you next time. <laughs>